Um, this morning, we are starting a, uh, a new series uh, called Money Matters. And uh, this is very definitely a follow-on from the previous series that I did called Poured Out on Service. And one of the things that I uh, wanted to come to communicate in the Poured Out series is that we sometimes think that if we serve in the Spirit's power, we're going to get depleted and exhausted. And that's not the way it works in the economy of God. If you serve in the Spirit's strength, rather than becoming exhausted and depleted, you end up being more empowered by God to do things at a more significant level. And hopefully part of what came out of the Poured Out series is that you have a vision for serving that grows you as a follower of Christ. Well, the same principle holds true with our financial stewardship. We think that if I give, I'm going to be depleted because, because we think that money is finite, and if I give, I'm not going to have as much as I had before I gave. And yet in the economy of God, the way it works is that you give, and God in his grace and in his mystery begins to enrich you more so that you have more to give. Now, if you're hearing what I just said, you might think, wow, does he believe in prosperity theology? Like if I give, then I'll, I'll get more? I emphatically disagree with how prosperity theology is voiced in 2019. Nevertheless, there are some astonishing scriptures in the New Testament that talk about God wanting to release material possessions into us so that we can be progressively more generous to others. I'll say more about that in a little while. So this morning I'm going to talk about, about ownership and the idea about who really owns my stuff. You know how you, you get on the inter internet, you, you get some things that are digital, and then it, you ask the question, where's my stuff? And, and it, it shows, click on here, and you'll see where your stuff is. Uh, the biggest question possible, who really owns my stuff? All the things that I have. Who owns that? Well, I'm sure you know who this guy is. Yep. He has made your life so much easier, hasn't he? I mean, you, you can sit in your recliner, and you can shop. Need new shoes? Yep, I can shop for new shoes. He's made your life really, really easy, and therefore, therefore, he's been enriched, right? Uh, think about what Amazon has done. You now uh, have all sorts of things owned by Amazon that you can go to. How many of you have bought shoes at Zappos or books on Audible? All those are Amazon companies. And that's made Jeff Bezos a billionaire to the, to the point of $160 billion. That's, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And you'd think uh, for somebody who has that much money, life would be very secure, right? Uh, he's, he is actually the number one landowner, he and his wife, number one landowner in the United States. So you think he'd be, that might be pretty secure, right? Wrong. Because earlier this year, Jeff, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos decided to get a divorce. Well, in a high net worth couple, that becomes incredibly complicated 
Their, their home is in Washington. It's a community property state. They have no prenuptial agreement for him to liquidate enough assets to give her half the assets means that he's going to have to he's going to have to sell a bunch of stock that dilutes his ownership in the company that he built that dilutes his power in the company that he built and the bottom line is that uh, divorces for couples like this are outrageously expensive so all of a sudden, Jeff Bezos, who thought he was very secure in his money, loses $70 billion, poof, just like that, just like that. And what, what, he has, what he has, I mean, he did some pretty despicable things in his marriage, but, but what, he, what he displays as a principle is this. If you know how to own your stuff, you can grow your stuff. And on the other hand, if you're foolish with the ownership of your stuff, it can quickly fade. He was foolish in the stewardship of his life. He did some terrible things in his marriage. Because he didn't steward his life well, he lost a lot. And so what I want to talk about is how, how do you own your material possessions? How do you do that? Well, I want to look at ownership this morning, and I want to look at uh, some roles that you have and some goals that we can, we can all embrace. Here's, here's God's role, because God's got a role in owning uh, in, in, in this whole process of ownership, and God's role is to own all that you possess. And if you look at Colossians chapter 1, the book of Colossians is written to tell the people in Colossae who Jesus was. And so he starts off with a description, an amazing description about Christ. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Now, by presenting Jesus this way, Paul gives us three reasons why God is the owner of all that you possess. The first reason why God is the owner is because he created it. By him, all things were created. If you think about this universe that we're in, we see solar systems and galaxies, we see planets and moons, and what we realize is that while God the Father was the architect of creation, Jesus was the contractor. God planned it all. Jesus was the one who actually did the nuts and the bolts of creation. And when you think about galaxies like what you see on the screen, or when you see these massive clouds in, the, in the, the night sky through the Hubble telescope that are measured in millions of light years. You think about how big and powerful God the Father is to plan this and how amazingly, astonishingly powerful Jesus is in creating it, and he creates it merely by the power of his word. Can you go out to the night sky and say, I think I want a galaxy out there, and I'm going to name it after myself. Not the Milky Way galaxy, the McIlvain galaxy. Boom, there it is. Yeah, uh, I can't do that. You can't do that either. 
God creates things that are visible. He also creates things that are invisible. Think about, think about your mind, like your mind is an invisible thing. Think about the invisible spiritual realm around us. He creates visible things. He creates invisible things. He is infinitely powerful. So if Jesus created the universe, doesn't it make sense that he would own planet Earth? And if he owns planet Earth, doesn't it make sense that he would own the property that you own and the stuff on it? In other words, he owns the land upon which your house sits. He owns your house, the stuff in your house, your garage, the car in your garage. He owns all that. God is the owner of your possessions because he is the creator of the entire universe. Well, you might say, well, okay, well, my money isn't represented by dollars and cents. It's represented by digital assets and cyberspace. He owns that too. The God who created the visible and the invisible also owns assets in cyberspace as well. He's the owner. So he's the owner for a second reason, and that is because he sustains everything. Uh, Colossians 1.17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He, he holds the universe in moment-by-moment moment existence. Now let, me, let me present to you a concept that I've... I've this may be somewhat familiar to you because I've used it before, but it's called the conserving causality of God. The conserving causality of God says that God continuously holds things in existence. Look at it this way. Here is a stove with a gas burner. The flame on that gas burner is not self-sustaining. In order to have the flame in that gas burner to keep on going, you've got to feed a steady stream of gas into that gas burner. What happens if you withdraw the supply of gas? Flame vanishes into nothingness. You can't even see any trace of the flame. It is the same way with the conserving causality of God. We, we think about the universe that it's so big and it's got to be self-sustaining, right? Right? Wrong. That's not how existence works. For things that are finite to stay in existence, an infinite being must supply a steady stream of existence. And if he were to withdraw his, his steady stream of existence, the conserving causality, the universe would vanish into nothingness. Think, how can that be? It's 13.5 billion light years across. That's nothing compared to the infinity of God. So if God sustains the universe, doesn't that mean he sustains your stuff as well? Of course it does. He sustains the land that you have. He sustains the house on that land. He sustains the material possessions in your house. He sustains all the stuff that you own in moment-by-moment -moment existence. Well, that means he owns it. Here's a third reason why God is the owner of everything. He owns it be all because he's our redeemer. Uh, Colossians 1, 18 through 20, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. 
because of the cross, you were bought, literally bought, out of the marketplace of sin. It was as if you were in uh, a slave market. And you were there because of the habits that you were enslaved to and because of the things that you had done. And in that slave market, you were mastered to an addiction or mastered to an attitude. You, and you were mastered by an addiction or an, or an attitude. And Jesus comes into that slave market and he says, I, I redeem you from that. I buy you out of that slave market of sin and I reconcile you to myself. That's why, why what Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? God bought you. The purchase price was the blood of Christ. So if God, if God purchased you, does that not mean that he owns you and that he owns the possessions that you have acquired? Of course it does. So God, God owns it all because he's our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. Here's another reason. God owns it all because he gives us the power to create wealth. This is one of my favorite verses in Deuteronomy. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth. The children of Israel are about ready to go into the promised land. And God is going to bring them into cities that they did not build, that have houses and gardens that they did not plant. And God is worried, and he's not worried, but God is concerned because he says, I, I don't want you to forget the fact that I'm the one who's bringing you into this land. So he says, remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you the power to create wealth. That directly applies to your situation. You may have had a good, good education. You may have had some fantastic opportunities. You may have, had, you may have inherited some, some money through, um, through a will, a trust, any of those things. And great, that happened. But who ultimately is responsible for that? Well, the ultimate responsibility is, is God. You say, how, how, how can that be? Well, he oversaw you in your mother's womb. He allowed you to be born in, in a country that has a free market economy. He provided an educational background for your work. He gave you a mind to be able to discern your gifts. He provided a job that you needed. He gave you opportunities that you might not have had otherwise. Ultimately, God is the one who gives you the power to create wealth. And if you, if you enjoy any measure of prosperity this morning, Yes, you had a role in creating that. But ultimately, God is the one who gave you the power to create wealth. So God's role in your financial stewardship is to own what you have. He is your creator, your sustainer, your redeemer, and he gives you the power to create wealth. Now, let's pause for a moment from this text and ask the question, how does this philosophy compare to other economic philosophies? Take socialism and communism for, for a second. Socialism says the state has the right to your money. Con communism says state has the right to, to everything. So we've done a lot of work in Russia 
as a church and in Cuba as a church. And we build these really wonderful, strong relationships with Russians and Cubans. And we hear stories about the impact of socialism on the Russian economy and on the Cuban economy and so on. And I will tell you, it's devastating. I have heard heart-rending, painful stories about the impact that socialism has had on marriages, on families, on children, and so on. Socialism is all the rage today in, in the U.S. It's all the rage. And I, I will tell you that it runs entirely contrary to what the Bible teaches. Of course, you can be a faithful follower of Jesus in a socialist regime, no doubt about that. There are plenty of people we know in Russia and Cuba and China who are faithful followers of Jesus under those regimes. But the idea of that runs contrary to the scriptures. The state is not the owner of your wealth. God is the owner of your wealth. So what about capitalism? Uh, capitalism was founded out of the Judeo-Christian notion of private property. Capitalism flourished in the late medieval period and the early Renaissance and Reformation because followers of Jesus learned how to use capital in order to make an increase and was based upon the concept of private property and the concepts found in the Proverbs and in two parables of Jesus, the parable of the pounds and the parable of the talents. Now here's the problem with some, not all, 21st century capitalism. When it becomes untethered from a Judeo-Christian worldview, it does result in a selfishness that says, this is my money. God, you have no right to my stuff. It's mine. Don't you dare tell me how to use my stuff. It's mine. So what's the position of, the, of, of Christianity, the, the, the biblical position, it is, it's this. On the one hand, you are responsible. The Bible teaches private property. In fact, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, is an affirmation of private property. The fact that I have a body made in the image of God means that I have property, my body, and I can do things with my body freely. You're responsible. On the other hand, God is sovereign. And the Bible continually affirms that God owns all my stuff. So here's the wonderful tension in the Christian worldview. I possess, God owns. I steward, but God is the ultimate source of all that I have. That's that an amazing tension because it causes us to walk in responsible wisdom in dependence upon the supernatural power of God. Bottom line is, God is the owner because he's the creator, sustainer, redeemer, and empowerer of your wealth creation. Now, with that in mind, let me just pause for two applications. Here's application number one. You can trust him with your anxieties. If God is the owner, you can trust him with your anxieties. Um, any of you ever feel pressure about money? You're not laughing. That means you probably do. Any of you ever beat yourself up over bad financial decisions that you made? 
Any of you ever th- uh, think, uh, man, how am I going to pay off these debts? What am I going to do? All of us, at, at, from time to time, will feel anxiety and pain over what we've done or what's coming up in the future. When I was in the business school at Southern Methodist University as an undergrad, I took an investments course from Don Jackson. He said this. He, he said, you know, I counsel people who make $15,000 a year, people who make $30,000 a year, people who make $300,000 a year, and people who make a million dollars a year, and guess what the one thing that is common to everyone? Anxiety over money. Doesn't matter how much you have. Everybody, to a certain extent, will feel anxiety over money. What do we do with that anxiety? At some point, we have to have the ownership talk with God. And the ownership talk goes like this. God, here's all the things that I have. I've got a, I've got a body that can work. I've got accumulated assets. I have a lot. So, Lord, I'm just going to say, Lord, this stuff that I have, I, I want to deed it over to you. You're the owner of it. I entrust it over to you. You're the... You're my creator, sustainer, redeemer. You're the one who empowers me to create wealth. I'm taking what I have and I'm deeding it over to you and I'm saying, God, this is yours. This is yours. And I'm going to trust you with it and I'm going to consider that you are a good father. You're a good provider and I'm, and I'm going to trust this over to you and I'm not going to live in anxiety over what I have or what I don't have. You're in charge. Second application is this. If God owns it all, you can trust him to meet your needs. You can trust him to meet your, to, to meet your needs. Um, in the past 25 um, years that I've been here at Grace, I have heard many people tell stories about how they, they weren't giving for a while and how they started giving for a while. And they said, you know, it was really interesting because we, we weren't giving and we were kind of, kind of struggling financially. We started giving and obviously our cash flow was different, but it seemed as if we were still doing pretty good. And then it seemed as if we were maybe doing a little bit better and I, we couldn't figure it out. How is it that we start to, to give and it seems as if we, we have more to give and we're, we're more enriched? How, how, does, how does that even work? If I hadn't heard so many of these stories, I could hear those and, and maybe be skeptical a, a little bit, you know, and, and I've heard so many of these stories, it's made me come back to the scriptures and realize that the promises of God about giving work. If you, if you are trusting God for your needs, what I'm going to argue toward the end of this message, it's a good idea to be a giver. So that's God's role is to own. Our role is to manage what God owns. And we see this from the parable of the talents. So rather than reading the parable, I'm just going to tell you the story, and then we'll zero in on some, on some verses. Here's how the story goes. There was a wealthy businessman in the ancient world about ready to go on an extended journey. What does he do with his money? Uh, there's no secure place to store money in the ancient world, so he calls his employees in. He says, I want you guys to take my assets and invest them while I'm gone. And there are 
employees with different levels of skill. And to one employee, he gives five talents. To one employee, he gives two talents. To one employee, he gives one talent. This was a lot of, of money. Um, a talent is a unit of measure of about 75 pounds of silver or gold. Hypothetically, if it were gold, it would be about $30,000. So employee number one gets $150,000. Employee number two gets about $60,000. Employee number three gets, gets about $30,000. And the, employee, the guy leaves on his, on his trip. The employees immediately go out and begin to invest. Employee number one does some research, he puts together a business plan, he begins to invest, and before long, he has doubled his master's money. He's made 10 talents. Employee number two does the same, he's got two talents with the same passion, he begins to invest, and before long, he's doubled his master's money. Employee number three has a problem. He doesn't really trust the master. Instead of shrewdly investing the money or even putting it in a bank, he goes into the backyard by the light of the moon, he begins to dig this deep hole. He takes that money and he folds it into a napkin, makes sure nobody's looking around, and he stuffs it in the hole, covers it over, and puts some sod on top of the hole. Okay, safe, safe. And at least the master, whom I don't trust, is not going to say that I lost any of his money. So the master returns and he calls for an audit. Employee number, number one comes in. And verse 20 of Matthew 25 says, he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more. Now, what do you think his facial expression was like when he did this? He is fired up because of what happened. Like, yes, this is so exciting. I've doubled my master's money. Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. The master said, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, in the, this is a parable, okay, but think about the story. How's the master going to be thinking? Like, he's going to have a smile on his face too. Well done. You did good. Well done. Enter into the joy of your master. So then number two comes up, and he says, Master, you delivered me two talents. Here I've got made two, two more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful of a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. I want you to notice that in the, both examples set you over much is the reward. And we talked last week about the judgment seat of Christ. So these guys are managing for a better future. Then we got a problem. He would receive one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here, have what is yours. Wow. That's a completely different attitude than the first two. It's like he's saying, you know, admit it, boss. You, you are a mean, angry, stingy person. I didn't want to risk putting your stuff into the market because I was just afraid of what might, might happen. Now, what does the parable mean? Well, the bi wealthy businessman is Jesus. He is about to go on a long journey. He's going to return to heaven, assume his place at the Father's right hand. And he's going to be there a long time. It's been at least 2,000 years. One day he's going to return to planet Earth in glory. The employees represent you and I. 
Um, except in the parable, they're not called employees, they're called slaves. We, you and I are bond servants of Jesus. We exist to serve our master. The talents represent the portfolio of assets that you have. What do you have? Well, you've got your physical body. You are steward of your body. You have your time. You have your money. You have your material possessions. You have your natural talents. You have your spiritual gifts. These are like portfolios of assets. And your job between the time you come to Christ to the time that you enter into heaven is to invest those assets into God's kingdom work. So the main idea of the parable is this. You've got a critical task to accomplish during your life. Do business with your portfolio of assets to the glory of your master. Well, how do you do this? Well, you do this by investing in God's kingdom beginning with your family. And the return is not simply for your personal benefit, although that's a legitimate part of it. I mean, we are called to meet our financial, our economic needs. But it's not just that. It's that you would advance the cause of Christ beginning with your household and moving outward including the place where you live and internationally to, to, to the nations. And how do you do that? you got a spiritual gift, right? You've got natural talents. We've got 50 people in C7 who are learning about how to use their natural talents at the Gallup Strengths Finder. You have financial assets. You have families who really function like assets that you can invest into the world. And I, wanna, I just want to ask the question, how do you feel like you're doing and managing those assets? What kind of return are you getting right now? I'm not talking about a monetary return. I'm talking about the portfolio of assets do you have. Are you getting a return that is advancing the cause of Christ? That's God's vision for your life uh, as a result of this parable. So how do you, how do, you do it better? Well, the parable tells us exactly how. Have a better perspective on the master. Because the third employee doubted the master's character. Therefore, he failed to invest his talents. And by implication, the first two employees, they knew their master's character well. Therefore, they invested those talents with great passion and joy. The same is going to be true with you. If you see God as angry, as frustrated with you, as vindictive, as kind of mad at you. Some people think that God loves them because he has to, but he doesn't really like them. God, I know you love me. You just don't like me. Because who would? Some people think that way about God. If you doubt the character of God, you are not going to be passionate about investing what you have in kingdom work. On the other hand, if you have this view about God that he is great and majestic and big and powerful and a generous provider, then it changes everything because your security is going to be in God, not wealth. Your passion will be God's kingdom, not the world. Your trust will be in God's provision, not simply the money and the bank. Okay? So you're going to have this abundance mentality saying, okay, how, how can I finish my life in such a way that I glorify the master. I mean, it's, 
It's his. He's my creator, sustainer, redeemer, the guy who empowers me with wealth. It's, it's his. Uh, it's not mine, ultimately. So, so how can I bring glory to him as I manage his stuff? That's the objective. How do we do that? Well, let me, let me conclude with some takeaways, three worthy goals. Number one, start with gratitude. Start with gratitude. We, as a culture, struggle with gratitude. We have this entitlement mindset as a culture. I'm not getting what I deserve. I deserve so much more than I have. Why, why am I not getting my fair share? That's our entitlement mindset that we have within our culture. The opposite of that is gratitude. The opposite of that is gratitude. It's sitting down and saying, what, what do I have? What do I have? And how can I, how can I begin to thank God for what I have? So I, I always think it's a good idea to just sit down and write out what God has done for you. Father, you say, I thank you for my job. Not perfect, but it meets my needs and a lot of our wants. I thank you for the job that you have given to me. Father, thank you for the home that we have and for the things that are in it. And you can have a home that is 15,000 square feet, immaculately, immaculately, beautifully decorated and not be grateful. You can have a home that is 1,500 square feet, decorated out of goodwill, and be grateful. It's not a matter of size or worth. It's a matter of your attitude toward what you have. You start with gratitude. Gratitude is a character thing. You say, Father, thanks for the car I drive. Father, thanks for the life mate that you've given to me, my spouse. You could say, here she's not perfect, but neither am I. And I'm thankful, Lord, for the spouse you've given to me. Father, thank you for my natural talents. Lord, thanks for my spiritual gifts. Lord, th thank you for the portfolio of trials that you put in my life because that portfolio of trials has built my character in a significant way. If you start with gratitude, it shifts your attitude toward your financial resources. Not, imme not immediately, but what I'm finding is that if you will start with gratitude for 30 days, that after, at the end of 30 days, your attitude toward what you have is fundamentally going to start to change. Here's a second worthy goal. second worthy goal is be faithful. Practice the discipline of grace giving. We'll talk more about this next week. But I, I want to highlight two important verses. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, do you see the freedom that we have? You, you get to decide how you are going to give. You, you have the opportunity to decide how you're going to do it. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. As you probably know, the word cheerful means hilarious. It's like, I want giving to be such a joy, Paul says, that I, I want you to do it willingly and freely and cheerfully as if I'm excited about this because I, I get to use this to advance the kingdom of God. Cindy came to me a while back about, about uh, something that she wanted to do. And my first thought as she said this is, I can really get behind that because it advances the kingdom of God in a way that's directly related to something I'm passionate about. And I was, I was thankful that that came up inside me. 
because there's been other times where I thought, uh-uh, uh-uh. So I was, I was happy that that happened, because it doesn't always happen that way. I want to alert you to another passage, and, and that is uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also to you, on the first day of every week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. Paul says, look, when I come, do not take a collection in the church in my presence, because I don't want you to feel as if I'm, if I'm like forcing you to do something. So what I want you to do is I want you to, uh, Corinthians, I want you to engage in regular percentage giving. And that's the principle for us. The principle is regular percentage giving. Not only do you have the freedom to choose how you give, you have the freedom to choose how much you give. Regular percentage giving says, okay, God has enriched me this much, therefore I'm going to give this percent. You say, what about tithing? Well, uh, tithing uh, was practiced by Abraham in Genesis 14, before the law. Tithing was practiced in the law, but there were three tithes, and that tithe included not 10%, but between 28 and 32% of your total income. Jesus mentions tithing only once in the Gospels and in passing. The dominant teaching in the New Testament about giving is regular percentage giving. I think 10% is a good benchmark because it's mentioned in the Old Testament and Jesus mentions it in the, in the New at least twice. It's a good benchmark. But some can't give 10% and shouldn't feel guilty that they can't. That's not joyful giving. Some can give way more than 10% and could find greater joy in advancing the kingdom as they give more than that. But the idea is regular percentage giving is what the Bible, the Bible teaches. And when we do that, uh, that is a way to take our gratitude and invest our gratitude into faithfulness. And then a third takeaway is be watchful. Because remember the discussion last week about the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus is coming back, and one of the things Jesus will review is, okay, so I'm your creator, sustainer, redeemer. I empowered you to create wealth. So let's just see, how did you do with storing up treasures in heaven? And wouldn't it be cool if Jesus says, well done. Wow, you did great. You did great. He's not going to... He's not going to chastise you for what you didn't do. Because remember, the issue of the, self, at the judgment seat of Christ is not sin, but service. He's not going to chastise you for what you didn't do. But he's going to reward you for what you did do. And if Jesus says, here is your tangible set of assets that you treasured up in heaven. Here it is. And you say, wow, what do I do with these? Ah, what you do with these, well, you'll have all eternity to learn about what to do with these. Because these are, these are for you to use for all of eternity in worship and service to me. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. So I go back to Jeff Bezos. Man, he has made my life so much easier. Because when I want to buy some things for my, my adult children who have kids, I can get on Amazon, plug in their address, boom, it's there. I love it. But he, he illustrates a principle. 
Um, if you don't know how to own well, you can lose quickly. If you know how to own well, God fellowships with you in your financial resources supernaturally. And that's fun. That's fun. Because you see the power of God. Let's stand for a closing prayer.